Hey, this is Cody Turner. In this episode of the podcast, I speak with my friend Hunter Gentry. Hunter and I were both philosophy majors at the College of William and Mary for our undergrad. After graduating from William and Mary, Hunter went on to receive his master's degree in philosophy from the University of Houston. And he's currently a PhD student in philosophy at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. In this episode, we discuss a forthcoming paper of Hunter's, which is about to be published in the philosophy journal Philosophical Psychology. The paper is called Extended Control Systems, A Theory and Its Implications. And the paper exists in what's called the extended mind literature in philosophy. So the extended mind is the idea that the mind isn't contained to the head or the skull, but that the mind can actually extend out into the environment such that elements of the external environment can actually partially constitute cognitive processes. In his paper, Hunter lays out an argument for what he calls extended control, and he gives reasons to think that the extended control framework is actually to be preferred over the extended mind framework. And we talk about why he thinks this is the case in the episode. If you're not familiar with any of these concepts, that's okay, because I think we try to describe a lot of the concepts so that anyone can understand, even if you have no previous acquaintance with any of the relevant philosophy. And if you want to dig deeper into this stuff, I'll embed a link to Hunter's paper in the show notes. I thought it was a great conversation, and I'm glad that Hunter could come onto the podcast. So buckle your seatbelts. Here we go. Welcome to Tent Talks on the Shelter from the Storm podcast network a place to talk the rain away with your host, Cody Turner. There's a storm coming, Mr. Wayne. Let's dive headfirst into the extended mind stuff. So I thought we would just kind of give a brief introduction to a lot of the conceptual landscape here for a lot of people that are unfamiliar with it. So just by... uh, to introduce the concept, I feel like a lot of people who aren't acquainted with this will operate under the assumption that cognition or the mind is a completely internal phenomenon, right? The mind is in here in the skull and the rest of the world is out there. But I think it was in 1998 that Andy Clark and David Chalmers came out with a paper on the extended mind where they were arguing that, no, actually, in some circumstances, the material vehicles of cognition can be constituted by processes in the environment. So the mind actually extends out into the environment, right? And and so one of the original thought experiments that really motivated this account, which which obviously you know, is the Otto-Inga, Inga? Yeah, Otto-Inga thought experiments. You have Otto who's stipulated to be an Alzheimer's patient who doesn't have access to his working memory, and then Inga, who's just a regularly cognitively healthy person, They're both trying to get directions to the Museum of Modern Art. Inga just has to consult her working memory in order to do so. And Otto um, doesn't have that luxury because he has Alzheimer's. So he has a notebook that he uses uh, in place of his memory. So he goes to the notebook and sees it written down where the address to the museum is. And he uses that to guide him to the museum. And the question that they ask is when Otto looks in his notebook and discovers what the direction, what the addresses to the museum, does he learn a new fact or is he uncovering something that he already believes? And they're saying, he, well, he's 
it seems like he's uncovering something that he actually believes, which implies that he has a kind of extended belief. The notebook is playing the same role, the same functional role in his cognitive economy as biological memory usually does, and as it does for Inga. So they say, and this is a quote, just as Inga had her belief even before she consulted her memory, it seems reasonable to say that Otto believed the museum was on 53rd Street even before consulting his notebook. For in relevant respects, the cases are entirely analogous. The notebook plays for Otto the same role that memory plays for Inga. The information in the notebook functions just like the information constituting an ordinary, non-occurrent belief. It just happens to be beyond the skin. So I think for a lot of people, this is counterintuitive. I mean, for someone like me, who believes in panpsychism, and that's like a whole other podcast where the idea is the mind is in a sense ubiquitous throughout nature. Maybe the idea of the extended mind isn't as tough to digest, but I think maybe that's enough setup. So the extended mind is often juxtaposed with other frameworks for cognition that you lay out in your paper, like the embodied mind, the embedded mind, and the inactive mind. Do you maybe want to just uh, separate out those different frameworks, and then maybe we can get into some of the standard objections to the extended mind, and then that'll get us closer to your paper on extended control? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So as you say, there's kind of like, they call it the 4E approach to cognition, where there's embodied, embedded, extended, and inactive. And as you say, the extended mind or the extended cognition is the idea that cognition um, spans the brain, body, and the environment. Uh, cognition is at least partially constituted uh, by extracranial things that might be in the environment or might be in the body and not just in the, in the brain and in the, in the skull. I, th- I love Clark and Chalmers' sort of pithy remark that uh, there's nothing sacred about skull and skin, kind of alluding back to the early externalism about content from Putnam. Uh, and, and there's, there, so, so yeah, the idea is that cognition is in part constituted by um, processes that might take place in the environment as well as in the body. Where this differs from embodied cognition though, is that embodied cognition might be seen as less radical. So they'll say something like cognition is in part constituted by bodily processes, but not environmental processes or artifacts in the environment. So instead of it just taking place in the skull, it could take place in the fingers and in, in, in our bodies in general. So I think they usually cite examples of like, you know, you count on your fingers, you use your fingers to represent numerals, and that's a type of embodied cognition or to do calculations with your fingers. Yeah. And can I also like, so that goes against like, like some people think that the mind is just kind of like a computation, like computationalist. It's a computation that can be run on different hardware or just a matter of the functional structure, right? That the substrate takes, but embodied cog- cognitive theorists would deny that they would say like, no, you need embodiment. It's not just a software program. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's different strands of embodied theorists too. Um, and this might get us towards another debate between like representationalists and anti-representationalists might take us too far astray, but you, the idea of, of computationalism relies upon there being these representations in the mind that somehow stand for things in the environment and computations are performed over those. And that's what cognition is. And these embodied theorists, as you say, they might want to deny this and say that we're not really representing the world but some of them don't want to deny that. They want to say, like, no, your fingers are a type of representation in the same way that representations in the mind, uh, you can perform computations over those. You can perform computation using your fingers. Um, 
I think there's different strands of embodied theorists. And actually, uh, there's a professor here at uh, Wisconsin who thinks that um, embodied cognition is not necessarily like a like a theory, but it's more of a research program with different sort of ideas of what it means for cognition to be embodied. And so it's not a really unified theory. It's It's got different commitments depending on who you talk to. Um, now, then there's, then there's embedded cognition, and embedded cognition is even more conservative than the embodied or the extended approach. And this says that, and I think this is a crucial distinction, embodied and extended theorists usually talk about constitution, cognition being constituted by things in the environment or things in the body, whereas embedded theorists think that cognition is supported or influenced and might causally interact with things in the body or the environment, but it's not constituted. And the crucial difference here is that it might be the case that I use my fingers when doing calculations, um, but the embedded theorist is going to say, that doesn't mean that my fingers are literally a part of a cognitive system. They're just causally contributing to cognition that ultimately resides just in the skull, just in the head. It's not a part of the nature of cognition. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the embedded theorists are a little more conservative and, and how they extend out cognition. They want to ultimately say that it's, it's really in the brain. And of course, there are causal interactions with the environment that help cognition, uh, but don't constitute a part of cognition. And I don't know, maybe the inactive theorists, they, that might take us too far astray. I put that in the paper because I might get yelled at for not including it. But, um, <laughs> but I think the idea there is that um, cognition sort of unfolds by interacting in the environment. It's not clear how much of a distinction there really is between an active and extended approaches. Um, yeah. It's, what's interesting is most of the arguments that I've encountered for extended consciousness in the literature are based upon inactive approaches to cognition. And I mean, that's a whole other topic too. Like the, the extended cognition thesis is different than the idea that consciousness can be extended or consciousness is extended, which might right. be seen as more radical by a lot of people, I think. But yeah. I think the definition I give in the paper is cognition is partially constituted by the ability or disposition to act. Um, yeah. So having, having a body that's such that you can act in the world constitutes in part cognition. So interacting in the world in particular ways is a, being the type of thing that can act in the world uh, partially constitutes cognition, which I think is different from extended mind because it, extended mind, I think, is a little more, I don't know, an active cognition might seem more um, permissive in what it allows to be cognitive. So like, I don't know, you might think that eukaryotic cells have a disposition to act uh, in the world. Um, they usually take this like much larger approach to what constitutes cognition and life. Um, anyway, that might take us too far afield, but I think for our purposes, the embedded, embodied, and extended are, are really, it's, I think it's good to get those three distinct from each other to see where sort of extended control sits in. Yeah. Um, yeah, so my, my, my general feeling with respect to the extended mind is, I'm not sure if it's plausible with respect to the original auto notebook example, but it seems to me to be increasingly plausible as technologies become more integrated with cognitive processes. Like once we start, even, you know, if we're talking about iPhones or maybe even some form of uh, deeply coupled brain computer interface, then it seems like the, if you didn't think that it was 
plausible when Clark and Chalmers wrote the paper back in 1998. It might be more plausible now that technological artifacts can extend cognition. But as you know, in the paper, there's a bunch of different objections to the extended mind thesis and two that you really hone in on, which I think are uh, two of the major objections, are the coupling constitution fallacy and the mark of cognition objection. So could you just maybe lay those out? Yeah, so this comes from uh, philosophers Adams and Aizawa, Fred Adams and, and uh, Frank Aizawa, and um, Rob Rupert as well, I think, makes similar arguments. But um, the idea, at least first the mark of the cognitive, is the idea that these extended cognition theorists, they are claiming that cognition extends out into the world. And what they're doing is they're not asking what really cognition is prior to claims of its extension. So they don't have a theory of what cognition is. Um, but it seems like maybe a charitable way to interpret them is like, well, let's posit its extension. And then maybe we can get a theory out of that posit, out of what sort of explanatory goods we get out of a positing extension or something like that. And Adams and Aizawa claim that's wrongheaded. First, you have to give a theory before you claim that cognition extends out into the world. And one implication of this might be like, if you don't have a theory, you might just be like exploding cognition out into the world. All sorts of different things are going to become cognitive that intuitively are not. Right. This is what's called the cognitive bloat concern. Yeah. 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 And I think, I think that's an implication of at least one way to read it is it's an implication of uh, not giving a theory prior to claiming cognition extends out into the world. Uh, the second objection, which I think is related, is the, as you say, the coupling constitution fallacy or causal constitution fallacy. And this is to say that extended cognition theorists are confusing two different types of relations. So let's use the auto and uh, his notebook example to illustrate this. Uh, what they're doing is they're confusing a causal relation with a constitution relation. These are two metaphysically distinct relations. Um, so let's let's take a look at Otto. So Otto has Alzheimer's and he uses his notebook to recall or cue memory, right? Because he can't rely upon his short-term or long-term memory, so he relies upon the notebook. It's playing the same functional role, as you said, as long-term biological memory. And what the extended cognition theorists want to say is that as long as it's playing the same functional role, then we ought to admit that it's a part of uh, the cognitive system. Right. Okay. So isn't that the response by the extended mind co theorist to the mark of the cognition objection? Because don't they say like, yes, we do have a theory of cognition. It's a functionalist theory of mentality, right? Where if something plays the same functional role as, as some process in the head, some thing in the environment plays that same functional role, it's a part of cognition. So that they could respond, it seems to me, to that objection by, uh, again, defending a kind of functionalist theory of mentality. Yeah, that's one way you can respond. And I think people have responded that way. But um, I think other people have noted, I don't know the arguments off the top of my head right now, but other people have noted that like, perhaps functionalism isn't the, isn't like sufficient to ground extended cognition. Um, and, and, and this might be where they run into an issue, which is to say, like, just because it's playing the same functional role, just because it's causally interacting uh, with cognitive processes, doesn't mean that it, the, the notebook constitutes a part of the cognitive system. So this is where the coupling constitution fallacy gains its grip, I think, is, is that um, 
you know, just, just because it's playing the same functional role, it, it's causally interacting with cognition. You don't get to infer just from that observation that it constitutes a part of the cognitive system. So one way to look at um, causation and constitution metaphysically is to say that if X causes Y, then X temporally is antecedent to Y. It's distinct from Y. But if X constitutes Y, uh, it's less clear that these two things are distinct from one another. In fact, in a lot of cases, people equate constitution with identity. Um, but you don't have to buy that constitution is identity. You can just you can say that it's not quite identity, but it's a very close uh, relation that doesn't assume distinct individuals like causation does. I think one people one way people cash it out is by saying it's a nothing over and above relationship. So if X constitutes Y, then uh, Y is nothing over and above X. But they're, but they're not identical, like you say necessarily. Yeah. So one one intuition is that like if um, the hunk of marble constitutes David, the idea is that the statue David has some properties that the hunk of marble doesn't. But David just is nothing over and above uh, the marble. Um, which isn't to say that David and the marble are uh, identical, but it, it also doesn't quite seem that they're distinct either. So another thing that, that, that people say is like David and the marble are spatially coincident, that they rely occupy the same regions of space. And maybe even some people think temporally coincident as well. They occupy the same regions of space time. So, the, so these are the two of the biggest objections to extended mind thesis. And in your paper, what I think is interesting is you assume for the sake of argument that these things are that these objections are true and you're using these objections as constraints for your theory of extended control right so yeah maybe we can kind of dive headfirst now into the, your argument for extended control so i guess first what exactly do you mean by control here what, what is the relevant notion of control that you're that you're operating with yeah so i um I take a cue from Daniel Dennett in his book, Elbow Room. I think this was in 1984. He has this nice, very general description of what it means for something to be a controller and what it means for something to be a controlee. So I think he says something like this, that if A controls B, uh, then A is such that it has the capacity to drive B into a certain range of states. And if A is frustrated in this driving of putting B into a certain state, it's not in control. Um, or if it's, it's, if it's not able to drive B into a certain range of states that it you know, quote unquote wants B to be in, uh, then it's, then it's not in control. And I think this is a pretty intuitive notion of what control is. It's this idea that like, well, seems like I'm in control of my behavior when I reach out to grab my, uh, my can of sparkling water. Um, I have some sort of goal and, um, I want my hand to pick up the can and um, I'm successful and I'm, I'm in control. And so far as I do actually lift the can, I'm able to drive my hand to that certain state of picking up the, the can of sparkling water. Um, so this is a kind of jumping off point for me, but I'm also motivated by uh, other intuitive examples where like we seem to talk in ways like the thermostat controls for the temperature of the room. And what we mean by that is like, look, the, the thermostat can regulate. It can measure the temperature in the room and then it flips on uh, when it drops below a certain range of states that uh, it's supposed to be in. The, the temperature of the room is supposed to be in. So suppose I want it to be 70 degrees in here. 
Um, thermostat's going to flip on when it drops below 70 degrees and it's going to you know, turn on the heater, heat it back up to 70 degrees and then shut off again. And presumably when we say that, we're not, that's not just an instance of us anthropomorphizing objects. Right. We mean it literally. It does control the room. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, we mean it literally as if like, look, the thermostat is a controller. It's doing work that involves controlled processes. Um, so to, returning to a point that you said earlier about the extended mind, some people who are not familiar with the literature or committed to panpsychism <laughs> might think that the extended mind is super counterintuitive. Might say like, hey, that's really weird to say that the notebook is literally like a part of Otto's mind. What's nice about this, this kind of approach with control is that it, it seemingly doesn't face that problem. There's lots of things that we think are controllers, like the thermostat, for example. And um, so this is, this is what sort of motivated this idea that maybe control can extend out into the world is that it doesn't immediately face this counterintuitive claim uh, that extended cognition faces, that things in the, things in the environment can be controllers. So, uh, so obviously extended control doesn't entail extended cognition, right? You can, no. but yeah, at least it's not supposed to, if it does, that might be a problem for me, but I, this is good though, because I do think I want to leave it open that extended cognition could be true. It could be a true theory. Um, I think the goal of the paper is to show that there's space for this other sort of idea of, of, of extension, namely control and control doesn't necessarily commit you to extended cognition, but it leaves it open that extended cognition could still be a theory. Uh, and towards the end of the paper, I discuss maybe like kind of the interactions between extended control and extended cognition in terms of, uh, the sort of explanatory goods that we get from either one. And I gesture at maybe like extended control ought to be preferred because it avoids these objections while also doing some explanatory work to make sense of complex interactions between agents and artifacts. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, and I want, I want to get there because that, that was some of the most interesting parts of the paper to me, but first you, so you're operating with, uh, I don't know his first name, but Shepard's theory of control. He's a scholar. So maybe you could just articulate what exactly his theory of control is now that you've motivated the general idea of control. Yeah. So as you said at the beginning, I, I want to use these um, objections to the extended cognition, extended mind to constrain my own theorizing. And one thing is that the extended cognition theorists, or I'm sorry, the critics of extended cognition claim is that you haven't offered a theory of cognition before claiming its extension. And so I think, look, this objection is going to apply to really any mental property that's claimed to extend. And I'm saying control extends. So I need to offer a theory of control. So I, I found in the literature, this guy, Josh Shepard, in a, I think it's a 2014 paper, he discusses the metaphysics of control and systematically lays out a really cool theory. And I think there's largely three sort of conditions. Um, one is that the degree of control that you have. So he thinks control is gradable. It's a, it comes in degrees and the degree of control you have is going to be partially a function of these three conditions, or at least it's going to be a function of these three conditions. Um, one condition is that you're going to, if you're in control, the outcome of your behavior ought to match the goal that you have, at least approximately. So I think the example I use is like, or maybe one example I use is uh, suppose I want to make a three point shot in basketball. So I, I have this goal and I represent the goal of like making this three point shot. Um, 
I'm going to be a, a, to a certain degree in control of that insofar as the outcome, let's suppose I do make the three-point shot, matches that goal, right? So um, if I make the three-point shot, that gives us some evidence that I have some degree over some degree of control over my behavior because I've matched the behavioral output with the goal that I'm representing. Mm-hmm. Um, now he, he also says like, it just needs to approximate the goal. The behavioral output just needs to approximate the goal. And this is to account for cases where I intend or have the goal of making a three point shot and I shoot the ball and it just kind of rolls around the rim and then just barely misses. Still, right. I have some degree of control, even though I've missed, you know, it's rolled around the rim. I got pretty damn close. Um, so I have some degree of control there. So this approximate modifier, I think, is important for him. Uh, the second condition that he gives, I, I call it flexible repeatability. The idea here is that I ought to be able to perform the relevant or target task in a wide variety of contexts. So I think the example I use is a pitcher can throw a curveball at 80 miles an hour. And let's suppose that he meets the first condition. So he has the goal of throwing a pitch curveball at 80 miles an hour, and then uh, his behavioral output matches that goal. Cool. We have some evidence that he has some degree of control over his behavior. But you know what would be really cool is if he could throw that 80 mile an hour curveball in wintry conditions with the bases loaded, if it's raining, um, if he sprained his wrist the other day. I mean, there's so if you can repeat the task and be successful in a wide range of different contexts, that again gives us more evidence that you have a high degree of control over your behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and then lastly, he gives this um, condition that's supposed to rule out deviant causation. So the idea behind deviant causation is let's go back to the three point shot example I gave earlier. Suppose I want to shoot a basketball, make a three point shot and uh, I shoot the basketball and uh, suppose in this particular circumstance, I'm going to miss it. It was going to be too short. But just by chance, this gust of wind came and picked up the ball, dropped it right in. You know, it was like a perfect shot. Mm. Does that give us evidence that I was in control of my behavior? I think Shepard's intuition is no. Um, I made that. Yeah, it's just chance. Like that's the the fact that the ball went into uh, the net uh, the, it's not attributable to me, at least not wholly attributable to me. Um, in fact, it would have missed had the wind not, uh, intervened. So this is an example of deviant causation. So you're in control. You have a certain degree of control. If you can match your goal to the behavioral output that you desire, um, you can repeat this action in a wide variety of contexts and, uh, the action was not successful because of deviant causation. So these are supposed to be three conditions under which a thing has some degree mm. of control. And that struck me as very intuitive when people are thinking about control. You're just get, you're just giving more substantial principles to undergird the intuitive notion that I think most people have of control when we talk about it. So after establishing this theory of control that you're operating with, you go on to, and this is where the paper gets uh, pretty technical. And we can get as technical or as non-technical as you want. But so you argue, you have this argument by mechanisms that serves to establish that technological artifacts can implement control. And one of your main examples that you focus on is the autofocus camera system. So could you just kind of give the basic argument there? Um, 
Yeah, I won't be able to rehash all of the details and the architecture of an autofocus. There's a, there's a lot of details. There's a lot of conceptual tools that you put on the table and a lot of different areas from the philosophy of mind that you draw on. I think it's really cool, actually, the way you integrate all of these different things uh, to serve your ends. But yeah, I guess maybe just uh, you know, present the argument in a way that someone who's not really familiar with a lot of this literature can maybe grapple with. Yeah. So the idea, the argument by mechanisms here, the idea is that I want to first establish, I mean, I already think it's intuitive that an autofocus system can be a controller. What, what is it doing? Well, if you've got a fancy camera, like a you know Canon DSLR or something like that, it comes built in uh, with an autofocus system. And the autofocus system, what does it do? Well, it, it focuses images for the photographer so the photographer doesn't have to do it on his own. Um, so all he does is engages autofocus and then it, it does its little thing and it focuses the image for you. And then you just point and shoot. It makes it really, really easy for the photographer. Now, what I want to do with this argument by mechanisms is put some teeth on the intuitive claim that the autofocus system can be a controller. So I take this theory by Shepard and I say, look, there's these three conditions and uh, on control. And I wonder, like, okay, can an autofocus system satisfy those conditions? And so what I do is I, I look at the mechanisms in an autofocus system, and I wonder, are, are there mechanisms in that system that could satisfy those conditions? Um, are there particular computations or particular parts of the autofocus system that are really good at um, matching the behavioral output? Are there mechanisms that allow for flexible repeatability? Um, and I think the answer is yes. So, yeah, I'm trying to think of how much I want to get into here. I mean, one thing to say is that there's light that gets sent in through the camera and it gets sent to this autofocus system. And what the system does is it does this um, sort of comparison between what the image is supposed to look like and then the way it's being registered on the, um, on the sensor. So it does this comparison between uh, what the focused image is supposed to look like and what it, what it actually looks like. And then it tries to put these two into, into phase with one another. And what it, what it, when it's doing that, it's actually adjusting the lens so that the image actually is in focus. Mm -hmm. And another thing is, um, and so the camera is playing two roles in this situation. It, it's the controller. It's controlling uh, the focus lens in the way that you're talking about, but it's also the controlee in the sense that the human agent is also controlling the camera, right? Yeah, yeah, good, good. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yes, the camera would not be able to implement its autofocus system were it not for the photographer interacting with it in a particular way. So it's true that the photographer is a controller who's controlling the camera. And now we go a step further the camera, in, in particular, the autofocus system, is controlling for focusing the particular image that the photographer wants to have taken. So I think the example I, I use in, is, suppose you have a sports photographer who's at a track meet, and he's getting ready to take uh, focused images of the sprinters. They're uh, getting lined up for the 100-meter dash. And um, we, can, we can sort of imagine there's two different cases here. One is this photographer is just starting off. He doesn't have a lot of money. And so he has to focus the image himself. So he's totally in control in this case. He's doing the focusing. 
and trying to get a clear image of the runners. And we can suppose that he's not very good at this, or maybe he, he is fairly good at it, but um, he's not as quick as the camera. I mean, the, the autofocus system can do it in a matter of seconds, focus the image. And so he doesn't get as many clear photos of the runners. Um, on the other hand, imagine you have this fancy photographer who's got this nice DSLR camera, he's got an autofocus system in it. Um, what's going on here is that the photographer no longer has to have the burden of focusing the image. The camera does it for him. Um, so the camera's controlling for this in a way that in the first case, the camera's not controlling for focusing the image. The photographer's doing all the work. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, the argument by mechanisms is to try to look at the mechanisms in the camera that are supposed to be realizing or satisfying these conditions of control uh, that Shepard lays out. And um, if it does that, then we can, we can legitimately say the camera's a controller. And then we get this further claim which is that I'm a controller and the camera's a controller, but the camera's being controlled by me. Right. And so we get this nice hierarchy. I'm a controller that's controlling the, the camera. The camera's controlling the focusing of the image. Right. And that's how you get this notion of extended control. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of torn whether I want to dive deeper as well, because you have all these interesting things to say about how, the camera derives its intentionality from the agent and how uh, you, you make these distinction between different kinds of information and how uh, control requires semantic information processing. Um, do you maybe just want to say a couple words about that? I, I don't know if this is going too deep for the casual listener. If it is, maybe we can edit it out, but how, how, I, what is semantic information? How is it distinguished between other kinds of information and how can artifacts process semantic information? Cause that yeah. struck me as kind of important to the argument. Yeah, it is uh, a reviewer actually pointed this out to me that I, that I need this notion of semantic information for um, this to work. So I had to spend a lot of time um, figuring out how it is that um, cameras could process semantic information and, and artifacts in general. Um, okay, let's, it's a big question. So let's start with the distinction between semantic and non-semantic information. So non-semantic information is just statistical regularities or something like that. Um, so the most common form I think is called Shannon information. This comes from this, um, engineer, uh, I think his name is Claude Shannon. I think this was in the fifties. This is a type of information that we use for like, that he used to develop like radio and phone. I, I think it was phones. <laughs> I'll have to do my history better next time. Um, but anyway, the idea is like Shannon information is just the reduction of uncertainty. It's just ruling out certain other um, possibilities in the space of possibilities. So if you have some information, you reduce uncertainty about what is the case. Mm -hmm. um, now contrast this with semantic information, semantic information uh, is information that's about particular things in the environment. It carries content. Um, and that's where this notion of intentionality comes in. When I say intentionality, I'm just talking about uh, uh, aboutness, right? Something has intentionality if it's directed towards something else or if it's about something. We talked earlier about representations. Representations carry semantic content because they stand for things in the environment. They represent the world. They're about the world. Right. They, that's, the, that's essentially once they carry semantic information. Um, non-semantic information can, doesn't have this feature intentionality. It's just carrying 
quantitative statistical information. And it's not necessarily about the world. It's just reducing uncertainty. Mm -hmm. uh, semantic information does reduce uncertainty, but it does it in a more sophisticated way by introducing this notion of content or intentionality. Um, okay. Now, I think that there are two different types of semantic information, too. There's this, like, factive semantic information, and then there's, um, I think, I, I forget what they call it, directive or um, imperative semantic information. Uh, the idea here is factive information is just, like, you could think of it as, like, a declarative sentence. It's just stating facts about the world, like that the book is white, that the notebook paper is white. That's semantic information. Um, but then there's directives that you can be given by semantic information that can be given in the directive form, like do this, or it could be conditionalized. Like if you get this particular input, do this particular thing. So, um, if you receive the notebook, write in it, <laughs> um, that, that can be a, a directive semantic information. Right. All right. Now I think this is important for this notion of extension. Cause I think that artifacts have to process semantic information. Um, and without getting into the details about how semantic information gets into the system, because that's going to have us talk about causal indication semantics and Dretzky, and I don't <laughs> want to get into right. all of that. Um, yeah. But um, the idea is that the, the autofocus system is receiving feedback from the environment. It's receiving light from the environment, and it's putting these, doing this calculation and trying to get the image in focus. And it continually monitors whether or not the image is in focus. And so it's receiving information from the environment, but it's also receiving feedback about whether or not that thing actually is um, uh, focused. So at like time T1, the photographer like points the camera at the subject that he wants to have focused. And then it does this phase difference calculation. Now suppose the camera slightly moves or the photographer moves it back or something like that. Well, now it's got to readjust and make sure that it gets the image back in focus. And um, it does a check to make sure the image is in focus. And if it is, then it sends like a green light or a little signal to the photographer that it's in focus. Mm. And then the, the photographer can press the button. Um, the notion of feedback, I think, sort of implies semantic information because it's you're receiving information about a thing, about whether or not the image is in focus. Mm -hmm. um, and again, there's there's more details here, but but, but I'm, I'm glossing over this, I think. Um, so the notion of feedback is supposed to suggest that there's semantic information in the system. Um, the other thing to say here, too, is that the autofocus system sends corrective signals to the lens to try to get it into focus, try to move it in a particular way. So I think that if it's sending a correction signal to the lenses, it's sending directive information to the lens to move in a particular way. Right. Um, and using this notion of directive or um, imperative semantic information, I think that's what's going to be relevant here is that it's sending information about how to move the lens information about what state the lens needs to be in. Mm -hmm. notice, notice the language I'm using here is like really closely relevant to what Dennett is talking about. You know, if A controls B, then A has the capacity to move B into a certain range of its states. Right. The objective signal that's being sent by the autofocus system wants to move the lens into a particular range of states. And I mean, want in scare quotes here, but you know, 
um, it wants to move the lens in a particular range of states. And insofar as it's able to do so, I say that it's in, in control and it meets the other conditions by Shepard that we yeah. laid. There's also this distinction. I don't know if this is worth mentioning or uh, how integral it is for people to understand, but there's this distinction between source intentionality and derived intentionality, things that intrinsically have a aboutness, that directiveness that we're talking about, or things that derive that aboutness from some other thing. So an example would be like a, a, a road sign or written language, like a road sign is about something, right? We see the stop sign, um, but it only has that intentionality because it derives that intentionality from the I don't know, the intrinsic aboutness of the mental states of the humans that fixed the meaning of that stop sign, right? And 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 what you're saying when, you, when you're talking about artifacts, having processing this semantic information and having this intentionality, you clarify that you're talking about derived intentionality, that this, this system derives its intentionality from the intentions of the agent that's controlling the technological artifact. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, uh, thanks for pointing that out. Yeah, there's a lot of distinction in the paper. I'd yeah, <laughs> and we, again, I don't. I don't want to get into all the Dretsky stuff because I don't even think I really quite understand all that stuff. So, <laughs> yeah, no, it's difficult, and I, I, I'm not sure I fully understand it either. Um, right, I think the distinction you, you draw is correct. So, yeah, the notion of semantic information that's being used in the autofocus system is derived, but it's it's kind of derived in two ways. I mean, one thing to say here is that whoever created the camera created it to have certain types of functions and to process particular types of information. And it's going to have the semantic information that it does insofar as the designers made it with that particular design uh, to process that information in that particular way. The information is being used in that particular way in virtue of the way the designers made it. So whatever information it processes, uh, whatever semantic information it processes, the meaning that that information has is going to be in part derived from uh, the designers of the camera. Right. But uh, so like the green light lighting up in, in a vacuum, that really doesn't have any meaning. It only has meaning insofar as the designers like set it up and sort of situated it such that when the photographer sees that he knows that the image is in focus now, you know, he reads the directions on his DSLR camera and says, the, 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 light, the light, when it's green, means it's all the autofocus system, you know, it's focused, it's done doing its job. Um, that's because the designers designed it that way to give off that information. Mm -hmm. um, right. And um, the photographer can understand the meaning of these, uh, the information that the autofocus system is giving. Um, in part because it's derived and he read the directions about it. But it's not like the camera has, you know, semantic information originally. I think as you put it, like we have semantic information originally, although this is a contentious claim, but I think a lot of philosophers say this, like the, the way our representations gain their content or gain their semantic information is by a natural process. It's by, it's, it has to do with us. We assign it meaning in some sense or it gains meaning by our interactions with the environment. That's not the case with the autofocus system. The autofocus system gains whatever information it's carrying in virtue of the, the designers that designed it. Yeah. So, right. So after you lay out this, this argument for extended control, and again, there's, if, if you want to 
full understanding of all the nuances and the dialectical moves that the argument involves, go read the paper. I'll embed a link to the paper in the show notes of the podcast. But after you're making this argument, um, you anticipate different objections to it. And then you get to what you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast about how maybe one should prefer this notion of extended control over extended cognition, right? In some sense, it gets some, maybe some of the benefits of extended cognition, but avoid some of the objections. But as you know, a critic might respond to this argument for extended control by saying that it, that it also falls prey to this coupling constitution fallacy that we talked about in the beginning of the paper. So how how does it not fall prey to the coupling constitution fallacy? And then more broadly, why should one prefer extended control over extended cognition? Yeah, so there's, in the paper, I note that there are kind of two different ways that you could run the coupling constitution fallacy. One way to run it is kind of the way Adams and Aizawa run it, which is to say, well, you haven't offered a theory of control. And so you can't go ahead and say that control extends out into the world because it you're, you're causally interacting with the autofocus system. Um, and I say, well, look, I gave a theory of control. I said that, you know, the ca- and I showed that the camera's a controller and I'm a controller and I'm interacting with this in a particular way. Um, so I do get to claim its extension. Now, the second way of running the coupling constitution fallacy is, is a little bit more damning for me, I think, um, which is why I had to invoke this, this fancy machinery that I'm not going to fully get into, but a little bit, maybe. Um, so... One critic might say, and in fact, a reviewer pointed this out to me. Okay, cool. The camera is a controller. Humans are controllers. They interact in particular ways. Why would you say that they're a unified control system rather than two causally interacting control systems? Mm-hmm. And this, this is a way of running the coupling constitution fallacy. Notice what I'm saying is that the camera and the ph- photographer form a unified control system, a single system. I'm making a constitution claim here. I'm claiming that um, there's a control system that's partially constituted by the photographer and then the autofocus system. And the critic says, wait a second, you don't get to say that it's constituted, uh, that a unified system is constituted here. At most, you can say that you have two interacting, causally interacting control systems, the photographer and the camera. And that might be not an interesting or controversial claim. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's not interesting. It's not controversial. It doesn't do the work that I want it to do. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, how did I respond to this? <laughs> well, I looked at a lot of literature on constitution and it turns out that there are, well, this is contentious, but some people think that there are a couple different constitution relations. Um, because there's lots of different things in the world that look like they bear the constitution relations. So um, water is constituted by H2O molecules. Some people think that. Um, And then other people, and there's also this example that we said earlier, which is that the statue David's constituted by a hunk of marble. Mm. It's interesting that the constitution relation can hold in both of these cases. And it's interesting because there's a hunk of marble and there's David. This is a one-to-one relation. Right. And then there's the example with water, which is water is constituted by H2O, which is arguably a one-to-many relation where water is one thing. And then there's a whole bunch of uh, molecules, H2O molecules that constitute water. You might say it's a many-to-many relation. 
that's still helpful to me because there's at least two, maybe two different notions of constitution here, mm-hmm. um, which is determined by the relata. And I get into this more in the paper, but um, I think Robert Wilson argues in a paper that these are two different notions of constitution and it's going to be determined by the relata. You have many to one or many, many relations and one, one relations. These are two different notions of constitution. Um, and then he looks at this philosopher, Lynn Rudder Baker, who gives an account of constitution that's supposed to carve this middle ground between identity and distinct individuals. I do this in the paper. I'm not going to rehash all of it. It's very technical. Um, but one thing that Lynn Rudder Baker says is that constitution implies spatial temporal coincidence. That is to say that if X and Y constitute one another, then they occupy the same regions of space-time. Well, this is problematic for me if that's a condition on constitution, because the photographer and the photo- sorry, the photographer and the autofocus system or the camera are not occupying the same exact regions of space-time. They're very close to one another, the photographer's holding the camera, but it's not as tight of a connection as David and the hunk of marble. There's a temporal gap between the two. Right. And the interactions. Yeah. yeah. It looks more like causal interaction right. than it does constitution. Right. Now, um, Rob, Robert Wilson, he wants to preserve the majority of Lynn Rudder Baker's notion of constitution. But what he wants to do is he wants to be able to describe group agents. So like institutions that act uh, like maybe Congress or something like that or a corporation. He thinks that corporations act. So you can have a corporation that merges with another um, and they're constituted by the individuals that make up the corporation. Intuitively, he thinks this. But he knows the same problem that I noted, which is that if you've got all these individuals, members of the corporation, how is it that they constitute a corporation when they're not spatially, temporally coincident with the corporation? They all mm-hmm. have different regions of space-time. So how is it that they can constitute a corporation? If the, yeah, right. If that notion of constitution is correct, that would seem to undermine the idea that there can be group agents or that there can be this collective intentionality. Right. Yeah, exactly. But he wants to say, no, it, it does seem like there are group agents that institutions act in ways that the, the you know, the members don't. Um, they might. Yeah, I'll say that. <laughs> um, so what he wants to do is he wants to revise this spatial temporal coincident um, condition to account for group agency Mm -hmm. to be able to say that institutions are constituted by their members. And and I think it should be noted that the, the idea of group agency is gaining popularity. And I think that it's invoked, especially like in the social sciences, a ton. So this is, this is not something that is a fringe view in academia whatsoever. Collective intentionality is very, very commonly invoked. Right. And maybe another thing to say here, too, is um, if it's not constitution, then what what relation is it? Yeah. It's certainly not going to be identity. The members of a group are not identical to the corporation. Uh, and it's certainly not going to be causation either. It doesn't seem like the members of a corporation cause a corporation. It's, it's not clear what relation is going to hold here. And given that we've already said that there might be different notions of, cause, of constitution that's determined by the relata, it's very plausible that we have to have a different notion of constitution for group agents. And I think this is the intuition behind Robert, um, Robert Wilson, sorry, Robert Wilson's view. So what he ends up doing is he wants to keep the notion of coincidence, but he doesn't want it to be spatial temporal coincidence. So what he says is that um, 
an institution and its members are agency coincident. That is to say that they engage in the same action or actions. And this is supposed to capture constitution. So the idea is that the corporation, when it's doing a merger with another corporation, the members of the corporation are engaged in the same action as the corporation. They're merging with another corporation or they're buying out another corporation or something like that. Um, Maybe another way to cash this out is that it's hard to see how a corporation could buy out another if it wasn't for the members doing the work. Mm -hmm. Um, So if they're engaged in the same action, then it's supposed to be the case that the members constitute among other conditions, the members constitute uh, the corporation or what other institutions in question. Um, again, there's more details in the paper, and I'm probably glossing over quite a bit, but um, I borrow this notion of agency coincidence because I think it's going to work in the case of extended control. And I think it'll be a little bit easier to see how it works here than it does in the corporation case. So the idea is that X and Y are agency coincident if they're engaged in the same actions. And what I want to say is that the photographer and the camera are engaged in the same actions at a certain level of description. Obviously the autofocus system is focusing the image and the photographer's doing something a little bit different. He might be holding the camera and wants to take clear pictures of the runners, but I think they are doing the same thing, right? Like at at some level of description, they're taking a picture of the, of the runners and if we describe what the photographer is doing as taking clear photos of a particular subject, Hmm. uh, this can't be done without the autofocus system. The autofocus system is focusing the image in a particular way um, for the photographer. And so it might be true that the photographer, sorry, the autofocus system is performing like maybe a sub action of the overall action action description. So the overall action description is like taking a clear photo of the runners. Um, but notice that the autofocus system is doing a very particular part of that. It's doing the taking the clear photo part, getting, uh, getting the uh, runners in focus. Um, and so what I say in the paper is that it's, I think it's fair to say that the camera or the autofocus system and the photographer are engaged in the same action at a certain level of description. And if that's right, and these other conditions are met again, in the paper, I, I lay out the other conditions, but if that's right, then um, we can say that the photographer and the camera constitute a unified control system. That's very, very interesting. So let me just uh, summarize to make sure I understand. So there is this notion of group agency or collective intentionality. It's very intuitive. Like we, we talk about corporations and groups making decisions that uh, – the, the, the any individual of the group doesn't necessarily make right. I can be a part of a group and hold a belief that that the group itself doesn't hold, but I'm still a part of the group. And to make sense of this idea of group agency, which is popular, there's it seems like we need this other notion of constitution, which does not involve spatio-temporal coincidence. You're borrowing that notion of constitution to respond to this cup, uh, constitution coupling fallacy objection to your notion of extended control. My next question was going to be, could the extended mind theorist also borrow this, no- this notion of constitution to respond to the objection? 
Yeah, I think they can. And, um, this might, this might be problematic for me. Um, but I do leave it open that extended mind or extended cognition can still be true. I'm not, I'm not ruling it out out of hand. Mm. Um, so they might be able to, bo- to borrow this notion as well. And in fact, I think they should. Um, and I think a lot of times group agency, collective intentionality, um, joint action, a lot of this stuff gets cashed out in terms of extended cognition or distributed cognition, as some people call it. Yeah, yeah. The idea here is that, well, if, ex- if cognition extends out into the world, if it can be distributed into the world, um, then group agency is possible. How is, how is this supposed to work? Well, the idea is that like, if two people are interacting, they're both cognitive and they're relying upon one another, like maybe to, to remember where the MoMA is on 53rd Street. So we can imagine Cody and Hunter are in New York City and neither of them individually can remember where the MoMA is, um, but they want to go to the MoMA together. Um, yeah. They remember parts of the directions, but they don't remember the whole. Together, they could put their, their knowledge together and um, it looks like they can remember where the moment is on 53rd Street together, but neither of them individually could do it. Right. You might think that what's happened here is we've distributed cognition between the two of us. Um, right. Your so, memory and my memory together. Um, so, so then if, if cognition distributes in this way, you might think that when we actually remember where the moment is on 53rd Street, we were engaged in some sort of joint action. We were engaged in group agency. Because right. we're performing a task that neither of us individually could do on our own, something like that. Right. So in that case, it wouldn't be a technological artifact extending cognition. It would be a kind of social cognitive extension. Or, yeah. 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 We, we form a group agent in that instance or something like that. Uh, yeah. And also, like you say, um, independent of the coupling constitution fallacy, there are other benefits that this uh, notion, this theory of extended control has arguably over the extended cognition. It's, it's, it's less counterintuitive. It, it has a theory of control in a way that the extended cognition might not have a theory of cognition. So there are other uh, virtues that it might possess as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. I do think it's less counterintuitive to claim that control is out in the world than to say that cognition is out in the world. Um, I agree. Yeah, for sure. Um, and yeah, I think, I think that's right. The other thing is um, I have a theory of control, right? Uh, like you say. Um, another thing to say here is that sometimes um, the more traditional, I'm going to call them the intracranialist about cognition, they usually have, as you say, this sort of like computational theory of cognition um, where they think that the, the only thing that does the type of computations that are relevant to cognition are in the brain. And they'll give a theory, like Adams and Aizawa think, when we talked about this earlier, this original intentionality, they think that that's the mark of the cognitive, original intentionality or original content. And so anything that doesn't have original content doesn't, isn't going to be cognitive. Mm-hmm. So the, the notebook that Otto uses isn't going to be cognitive because at most it has derived content because mm-hmm. um, it's got written natural language on it. Yeah. Um, you know, what's interesting about that is I've been working on a paper where I'm trying to make an argument against the phenomenal intentionality thesis, which says that uh, original intentionality is grounded in consciousness. And the basic argument is that consciousness, ex- uh, ex- or sorry, source intentionality extends, but consciousness doesn't. 
And if source intentionality can be extended, but consciousness can't be extended, then it seems like there can be source intentionality independent of consciousness, contrary to what the phenomenal intentionality theorist says. So that would be kind of a way of responding to this idea that, um, um, that source intentionality is only in the head if source intentionality can be extended as well, but that's a whole nother thing. Yeah. I, that's, that's interesting. I, um, I briefly looked at some, uh, uh, I think it was an abstract for that paper and I I definitely want to read it. I haven't had a chance yet, but, um, sounds, sounds interesting. Um, yeah. And the other thing to say too, there's a debate between, um, these more radical extended embodied embedded, well, not even embedded, but these more, radical extended and embodied approaches and the traditional sort of intracranialists about what cognition is. So for example, I think Tony Chimero and I think maybe even, um, Dan, Daniel Hutto, they think of cognition as uh, a type of behavior. And, um, if cognition is a type of behavior in the way that like, behaving in a particular way is that is cognitive then yeah it seems like the embodied it can cognition can be embodied because my body behaves in a particular way or maybe like engaging with my notebook that's a type of behavior and that might be cognitive and um i think a really interesting objection that these more traditionalists give is to say that well wait a second doesn't cognition happen prior to behavior like we have computations over representations that lead to behavior. Mm. Um, so to equate cognition with behavior isn't quite right. We're missing something. We need this prior sort of stuff going on to explain behavior. Cognition is supposed to explain it, not be identified with it or um, uh, constituted by it, but right. supposed to cause it. Yeah. That's interesting. There's, yeah, there's, just, there's so much, uh, I feel like interesting work that's going on in this extended mind literature. Some other stuff that I've been reading is the question of whether extended cognition entails extended knowledge. I was reading a paper that if you combine extended cognition with reliabilism about knowledge, that gets you extended knowledge and leads to a kind of restricted form of omniscience, right? Where suddenly, you know, so like if, if the phone is the extension of my mind and it gives me extension, extended knowledge, suddenly I'm this kind of quasi omniscient being who knows everything. There's, there, there's this idea of the web extended mind where, uh, uh, you know, all, all of the information contained in the web is now subsumed in my mind and, that's, 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 you know, if you think the extended mind thesis in its original incarnation is counterintuitive, that might even be more counterintuitive. And I think that has, uh, p- you know, potentially interesting implications for a lot of different things like virtue epistemology. Like, what does that mean about uh, the development of intellectual virtues and stuff like that? So uh, I, I definitely do feel like there's uh, like a lot of work to be done and a lot of interesting ways that you can take this literature. Yeah. So that's uh, uh, Andy Clark has written on that, right? The extended epistemology. Yeah. 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 There's a, there's another sort of ethical implication of extended mind too, that I find really interesting. So suppose that like you say, my phone is a part of my mind and um, it's got all of these memories I've put into it. Like the first time I kissed my partner and it's got like bank information on it and it's got all these really important memories to who I am as a person. Mm. And then suppose you steal my phone and then you, you like destroy it you break it or something like that. And I've lost all those memories. Some people want to say that you've actually like attacked me as a person. You've assaulted me. 
um, there's, there's these interesting ethical, like if the phone is a part of my mind, how is that different really from a blading part of my cortex and taking away those memories? Like if you think about Otto for a second, he's got the Alzheimer's. Suppose he writes down all of his favorite memories in a separate notebook and then Inga steals it. He lost all those memories. It's almost as if Inga just ablated part of his hippocampus or his cortex. <laughs> it's like the ethical equivalent of doing brain damage to someone. Right. <laughs> if you just hit them in the head with a bat and completely eliminated a lot of their memory, taking away their phone is in some ways analogous if they become extremely reliant on their phone to the same degree they are reliant on biological memory. There's, there's this other uh, uh, a thought experiment by... Uh, Michael Lynch, where he calls it neuromedia. It's just essentially this brain-computer interface chip that you can place in your head. And with the power of thought alone, you can access any information from the web, any information from your phone. And it's so seamlessly integrated into cognition that you can't even distinguish between uh, like thoughts that are provided by neuromedia and your own uh, biological thoughts. And, you know, just to think about how much more pernicious surveillance capitalism could be in that kind of situation, you know, where, you know, we're all buying neuromedia chips from Facebook and, and, and they're making us, maybe they're making us think thoughts that uh, we're not even thinking because we can't distinguish between the thoughts produced by neuromedia and our own thoughts. So now they're suddenly engaging in some kind of mind control. So you can, you know, it all gets very dystopian very quickly when you think about different ways this technology can go. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's yeah. I, there was another thing that I wanted to talk about too, which I think is really fascinating. Um, you mentioned the 1998 Clark and Chalmers paper. Um, so they have that Otto and Inga example about getting to the MoMA, but they also have the example with Tetris and they, it gets increasingly sci-fi, right? So you start off just playing Tetris, doing mental rotation, and then you move to, um, making the rotations on the screen Right. And then Clark and Chalmers imagine like you have like a brain computer interface where you can like rotate the object on the screen, not by pressing buttons on the computer, but by thinking about rotating the objects on the screen. Right. And this is supposed to like push you intuitions that the mind can be extended or at least, um, uh, yeah, extended out into the world because it seems like you're rotating the little like, I forget what they call it, the blicket or something like that on the screen, but you're doing it by like, motor commands in the head that are connected up to a computer. So it looks like the computer and your mind are hooked up and you, the mind is extended out into the world. Well, interestingly enough, I think it was about a year and a half ago, two years ago, MIT did some experiments with like two or three participants at a time that were in different rooms. Or maybe they were in the same room. I'm not going to remember the details now. I think they were in the same room, but they were hooked up to one another with these electrodes on their head. And then they were jointly playing Tetris, but each one was like doing part of the task. Mm. And together they were like playing Tetris, one game of Tetris, but all three of them were doing it together. And I have to say, I don't think it's a mistake that they chose Tetris because it does look like there's like this like extended distributed cognition like implication, which is that each yeah. one of them is doing part of the task, but together they play the game of Tetris that's really cool. cool. That, that's like, yeah, that's even a, a more, yeah, again, a more like clear example of distributed cognition and the, the way that you're just talking about it, if we're both trying to remember the MoMA, like the minds are just so <laughs> interconnected in that kind of scenario. Yeah. They yeah. Were like sending thoughts to one another about where to like move 
like they would think I forget exactly all the science you should look it up uh, and, and and read about it I, I can't remember all the details but um, they were hooked up to electrodes where they could like sort of pass thoughts to one another or something like that it was it was bizarre um, but they were jointly yeah playing Tetris one single game of Tetris together three of them maybe we'll just be in a world where uh, we're all just have brain computer interface chips and none of us even talk anymore because we're engaging in telepathy or something like that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I know, I know that Neuralink, uh, Elon Musk company, they recently tested one of their Neuralaces out on a monkey and they think apparently they got the monkey to successfully control a computer with its mind recently. Oh, wow. I didn't hear about that. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, man. It's crazy stuff. Um, so yeah, uh, I, that's all I had, uh, unless you wanted to plug anything else or, or, or bring anything else up, but I mean, maybe one other thing to say is another thing that inspired me halfway through this paper was the field of human robot interaction. Um, yeah. so, and this is, this is actually kind of big here at UW Madison. There's a professor named Bill, I'm going to mispronounce his name. So I apologize. I think his name is Bill Mutlu. Um, but he is sort of interdisciplinary with linguistics. Well, by the way, congrats, man. That's a great, it's a great program. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I love it here. Uh, it's, it's great. Um, and so this, this professor, he's uh, sort of multidisciplinary. He's in like the psychology department, the computer science department, and I think the linguistics department or no engineering. And, um, he works in this human robot interaction stuff. And oftentimes they talk about how is it that we can make robots perform more flexibly um, and more complex tasks? How can we get them to do these more complex tasks and do it more flexibly? And he thinks that integrating them with humans and having this human robot interface is one way to have this more flexibility and have them engage in more complex tasks. Um, and there's lots of different ways that you do this. But um, one thing that gets talked about a lot in this literature is viewing the human and the robot as a unified cognitive system that are jointly performing tasks together. And this sort of inspired me um, because I started thinking about control theory and engineering and how we can model these types of behaviors. Maybe we can model the dynamic interactions between humans and robots in terms of control. And then, you know, extended control could be really fruitful here. And then the summer before I came to Madison, I saw that there was a, an article posted by UW-Madison that was talking about this professor's work, Bill Schmutlu, and he was talking about humans and um, drones, how they can interact with one another using a human-robot interaction paradigm to control flight patterns and stuff like that. Um, but he was actually talking about it in terms of shared control between the drone and the human, that they were sharing control over the task and I was in the middle of revising for like the third time on this paper. And I got really, really excited about this because um, it, as far as I know, no one else is talking about control being extended or shared or distributed amongst um, artifacts and humans in the way that I, that I was doing in the paper. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, it's exciting stuff and hopefully extended control has implications further for interactions between yeah. humans and robots. Yeah, that is really interesting. You also, you made me, this isn't entirely, uh, it's not directly connected to what you just said, but you made me think of this too. I just want to throw this at you. I, I read this paper recently called, I think it was by Paul Smart called Machine Centered Cognition uh, or Machine Extended Cognition. And the idea is that um, 
when humans and in some circumstances, humans might be plugging into, they might be subsuming their cognition within a greater technological system. So instead of the technological artifact being subsumed into our minds, our minds are subsumed into the internet or something like that. So like we're plugging into a greater cognitive system as opposed to that cognitive system plugging into us. And it just kind of flipped my intuitions on what's going on in a lot of these different cases. I don't know if that, does that kind of make sense to understand what I'm, what I'm saying? I think so. Um, normally, I think when we think about extended co- cogn- sorry, extended cognition, we normally think about it as hierarchical, like we're the ultimate cognitive being. And right, we're, we're the we're the low key of cognition. Yeah, yeah, and we extend it out to the you know the camera or the phone or whatever. And what this the suggestion here is that it's actually the opposite way that yes. the low key of cognition is in the computer or something like that, and we are so. Does the computer subsume us, or do we subsume ourselves? Is that does that make sense as a question? I think so. I, I think the idea. It's been a second since I've looked at the technicalities of the paper, but I think the idea is that the computer subsumes us. Like we're like, we're like this node that's plugging into this greater uh, technological cognitive system. Wow. But I forget a lot of the details, but I don't know. Maybe something interesting to check out. Yeah, no, that's really fascinating. I, uh, I'll send you the paper after. Yeah, please, please do. Yeah, that sounds interesting. I'd love to read it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's all I had. Cool, man. Well, thank you for doing this. I, I thought this was a really fun conversation. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Thanks uh, for having me on. This was, this was great. Good to see you again, too. You too, man. Let's definitely uh, continue conversing as we move forward. Yeah, yeah, definitely.